Ramble. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging, and that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for her job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters. Especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days bada bing bada boo i have a star on my face because i have a massive pimple so if you're watching the visuals i'm sorry if you're not Parul was catching her breath as she's stepping in through her house front door. She was busy all day running all of these errands, running around town, buying groceries, going to the local shops. And on top of all of that, she's heavily pregnant. So it's going to take like two times as long to do everything. And now she's rushing in through the door. She's trying to check up on her eight-year-old son, Amar. And also she's babysitting her six-month-old nephew. So she's checking up on both of them. And like, okay, yeah. In hindsight, probably not the best idea to leave an eight-year-old in charge of the house, in charge of watching this six-month-old baby. But in this area, daycare is just not really a thing. Like, people don't really have babysitters. They don't really have places to send their kids so that they can run errands freely. This was the norm, and she had done it before. And Amar, who's eight, I mean, he's pretty good. He's been left home alone. He's been babysitting his cousin. Everything has been fine. So she walks in through the door and she sees her son Amar just playing on the ground with all of his little toy cars. She's like, hey, sweetie, I'm home. And she's putting down the groceries and she's wondering, "Okay, well, where's the nephew? Where's the six month old? Amar just is sitting there quietly and doesn't even respond to her. Sweetie, did you hear me? Where is the baby? Is he in the crib? He's not responding. So she stops what she's doing, looks at her son And she sees that he's kind of smiling. And it's just odd. It's a little unsettling. Like he's not laughing. He's not giggling. It feels like, you know, when a kid is playing a joke on you and they hid your keys when you're super busy. It's like that smile. So she's like, okay, come on, get out of here. Like, where's the baby? And he just says so calmly, mom, I killed him. What? 
At first, she thinks all of this is a joke. I mean, maybe this is how kids joke around. Maybe he inherited some weird, sick, deranged sense of humor from someone up in her family line. She doesn't know where, but this has got to be a joke, right? So she gets up and she's like, what are you talking about? Where did you hide the baby? The game is over. Hurry up and tell me. He just grabs her hand and starts leading her to the backyard. And I think this is when she genuinely starts feeling a little bit more relaxed. I mean, I think she could still probably hear the heartbeat in her throat. She's probably still a little bit panicked because the baby is still missing right now. But she's thinking, okay, I'm going to go outside. The baby's going to be laying flat on its back in the grass in the backyard, sucking its thumb, looking up at the sky. It's going to be okay. And then I'm going to have to teach my kid a lesson. But as they're heading out, There's nothing. The deeper they get into their backyard, she's starting to get that anxious feeling again. And she starts scolding her son like, this isn't a good prank. Just tell me where you hit him. You You need to tell me this could be dangerous. He starts silently leading her towards the back further and further. And finally, he lifts his hand, his tiny little hand, and points at the ground. There's a bunch of dirt that looks like it's been freshly dug in a patch of grass. She doesn't even have time to think. She throws herself on all fours. She starts digging until her fingers brush soft skin. And she lifts her baby nephew out of the dirt. And it looked like he had been in some sort of horrible, horrible car accident. I mean, she could hear ringing in her ears. She's panicking. And she looks at her son and he just calmly says, I smashed his head with a brick. And she leaned over to the side and threw up. And the eight-year-old dug a grave? Dug a grave. Wow. So, as always, full show notes are available at RottenMinglePodcast.com. But this case takes place in India. I had our wonderful Indian researchers assist with gathering all of the data for this case and honestly just helping understanding the cultural aspect to it all. Indian culture, in some respects, is very similar to Korean or even American culture, but there are some stark differences. So if there's any chance that there's any nuance of cultural significance that I wasn't able to fully grasp, please let me know. Or if there's anything else you want me to know about this case, let me know in the comments. And I'm sure you guys already know this, but a quick disclaimer. Okay, the actions of one individual does not reflect on the culture nor the Indian population as a whole. So with that being said, let's get into it. The police are sitting across from a serial killer in the interrogation room. Now, Serial killer? A serial killer, yes. Now, usually there's a whole list of mind games that they play in order to get the serial killer to confess to their crimes. It's a little bit different versus a regular killer. Not that like, okay, regular killer sounds weird, but you get what I'm saying. A serial killer, they have a tendency to kill a lot of people and they have they have a lot. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's yeah, a little yeah. bit different from yeah. having just a, not a regular killer, but you get the idea. They handle serial killers in a different way. And serial killers, they like to play their games. It is not uncommon for serial killers to ask for things from the police. They say, ooh, before I start talking, before I tell you where the bodies are, before I confess to the crime so these families can get closure, maybe I can get a cigarette around here. What's a guy got to do to get a cup of coffee? Or maybe sometimes it's a full-on fast food order. A lot of them like to ask for these things because it makes them feel powerful. I mean, think about it. It's almost when you're in the interrogation room, most people would think, I don't have the power here. The police have the power. 
But when a serial killer says, I've got information you desperately want, and I'm going to make you sit here and watch me eat McDonald's until I decide, I'm ready to tell you, it makes them feel like they hold all of the power. They want to savor this moment. So the investigators in this case, they're sitting across from a serial killer and they're asking, tell us why you did it. Why did you kill them? And he just says, I want some biscuits. Like the cookies, you know, the biscuit cookies that you dip in the tea. Mm-hmm. I want that and I want a cup of tea. The investigators are annoyed, but I mean, what choice do they have, right? They walk out of the room, they get the cookies and the tea. And for a few minutes, they're sitting there in the interrogation room with the serial killer, watching him just munching on his packets of cookies and leisurely sipping his tea as if they're just having afternoon tea with one another, as if they're old, old buddies from like the college days. Once the killer had his fill, he leans back and he starts talking. She was sleeping. I took her away and I killed her with a brick. I was like smashing the brick on her face. And then I buried her. I actually didn't feel that much excitement when I tried strangling her because she wasn't fighting back. So that's why I chose the brick. I hit her a lot of times with the brick. Because he wanted a reaction? Yeah. to, To have her fight back? And when they asked like, why? Like still that doesn't answer why. That answer is maybe how, but why? He just says, because I felt like it. I just wanted to. If one of the investigators had dropped their notepad or pen, because this is a shocking confession, when they leaned down to pick it up, they would have seen that the serial killer's feet did not even touch the ground. His legs were dangling off the interrogation room chair because he's eight years old. This is the story of Amardit Sada, the world's youngest serial killer ever. So, I mean, this is crazy. And I know with a lot of serial killers, we like to go into the childhood and figure out like what happened? Did they fall off a swing? Which is like a big conversation we've had on this pod, right? But Amardit's childhood seems so normal, if not mundane in some aspects. So at the- He's just entering childhood. Yeah, exactly. Like the very barely there eight years that he's been around town. Yeah. Yeah, I can't even call it a childhood, I guess, right? He just started living. Yeah. So at the very beginning of his life, he was kind of like every other boy his age. His parents said that he was very rambunctious and he went through the terrible toddler phase, the terrible twos phase. But I don't think it was, it was something so alarming. I don't think anyone sat there and was like, this one is different. This one is extra wild. I mean, he would do the normal things. Like he would lay like a starfish if you don't give him what you want. Or sometimes you're like trying to take him out of the playground. He would pretend to be dead and go limp. And he was like that. When he didn't get the things that he wanted, he would just pout. He didn't care that his family wasn't financially well off. He just wanted the toys. He wanted what he wanted for dinner. I mean, he was just a kid, right? But how could his parents not adore him? He was their only son, their only child. And every morning, Amar's mother would get out her coal. It's like this uh, black powder that can also be used as eyeliner. And she would dip her thumb in it and smear a dot on the side of Amar's forehead And she says, so this is a tradition where a black dot is placed on the child's forehead or cheek. It's supposed to ward off evil. It's supposed to ward off the evil eye. Mm. Yeah. And it's protecting the child from all the negative influences. And it's a very heartfelt motherly thing to do. It's one of those like heartwarming symbols of a mom's love. His mom would do that for him every single day. And she would say, may no one cast an evil eye on you. I don't think that she had any idea 
that he was the one that was going out there to be evil. I mean, how could she? Her son is eight. Imagine calling a child evil. You would get canceled. You would get canceled all over social media. But imagine if that child is eight years old, not even like 15, 16, eight. No one would ever even consider the fact that an eight-year-old could knowingly do something malicious. And to the adults, he was like this little angel. He was always known to be very smiley. That's what the neighbors said about him. Even the police, when they interrogated him, they said he smiles a lot. Like just nonstop smiling. You ask him questions, he's going to be smiling. He's telling you the story of how he killed people, he's smiling. When he's asking for cookies, he's smiling. So Amar's friends, on the other hand, I mean, he smiled at them too, but they were just, um, they were the only ones, it seems, that kind of noticed something off about him. He just played different. You know, when kids are playing, they're learning social skills and they're learning what it means to joke around without actually being too mean. They're learning how to be aggressive and initiate play wrestling without actually initiating a full-on war, a full-on fight. And then I'm sure you've met one of those people, even as an adult, where you're like, ooh, I feel like they don't really grasp the concept of how to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Like everyone is in a group and they're joking around lightly and they're like almost uplifting each other in their jokes. Like they're not actually punching down. But then this person will come in and just absolutely rip people to shreds, light someone on fire with their insults, but they're laughing as if they're doing exactly what you're doing. And you're like, that is not what we're doing here. It was kind of like that, but in the more childish sense. So Mars' friend said that he was always extra aggressive. Like there was just something about it and it was very noticeable, but they couldn't tell him about it. They couldn't confront him about it. They didn't even know how. They're just kids. For example, all of their friends would be play fighting or wrestling, pushing each other around. And then Amar would come in and he would just start throwing down real punches as if he wants to hurt whoever the friend is that he's punching. But he's laughing as he's doing this. Mm, so he feels like he's playing but he's actually hurting people yes so the other kids you know they're still learning how to be around in these social settings they don't know how to tell him wait that's not what we're doing because he could easily say that is what you're doing you're also punching and laughing and i'm punching and laughing but the way he's punching and laughing is like he genuinely is trying to hurt someone I mean, thankfully, he's eight and he's a pretty scrawny kid. So none of his friends got seriously injured, but they would just kind of sit there and be like, that is so weird. It feels a little bit unpredictable and a little bit unhinged, a little bit scary for his friends. And they also said whenever we played games, you know, we were at the age where we don't really throw tantrums in front of each other. We're like seven or eight. Maybe we do that at home, but we're trying to be cool kids in front of each other. If he didn't win a game, he would whirl his arms around like a propeller, just smacking around anybody in his way. He would kick dirt around and then he would march off home as if you personally attacked him. And everyone's like, okay, well, maybe he'll grow up. Maybe it'll get better once he starts growing up, right? But then he starts becoming a little bit antisocial in an angry way. So there would be instances where his neighborhood friends, they would be running in their group down to the little lake and they would see him sitting on his front doorstep. So they're passing and they would call out, hey, you want to come and play with us? And he would look at the ground and he would say, I don't really want to. Just in like a really soft voice. And then they'd say, hey, why are you not playing with us anymore? Are we not your friends anymore? Yeah, it's been so long. Like, let's go for the swim in the pond. It'll be so fun. 
Out of nowhere, Amar would jump to his feet and start screaming from the bottom of his lungs. No! Like, screaming at them. They could see the veins on his neck. His face was turning red. I mean, they were honestly so spooked out about this. Hmm. It's so weird. They didn't even... They would book it. They would book it out of there because it's creepy. So instead of playing with his friends, Amar would just isolate himself. He would spend more and more time by himself as he turned like seven or eight years old. He would climb trees and just stay up there for hours, staring at anyone that was walking by below him. Or he would stay home and play with his toys by himself. Now, from all accounts that I could find, Amar was the bully. Like literally all the sources are like, Amar was the bully. But Amar's mom didn't really think so. Okay, I think this goes to show you how much she doted on him. And this could play a huge factor in this case. But she genuinely babied him. Like, have you ever met those parents where their kids are an absolute menace to society, but they think that Mm. their kids are the ultimate victims to society? Mm. So Amar would come in, and there was this one time he had come in with grass stains all over his clothes. He had dirt all over his knees. He had a cut on his knee. And honestly, it just feels like he was playing rough with his friends, or maybe he fell climbing up a tree. But his mom thought otherwise. She was cooking. She freaked out. She wiped her hands on her apron, and she's running up to him, like trying to get the dirt off of him. Like, what happened? What happened? He wouldn't say. So she thinks, oh my God, he's being bullied. The next day, she goes to get a holy amulet, which is um, she goes to a Hindu priest and asks for a holy amulet, which is um, considered an object with great spiritual powers. You wear it to protect you and it offers blessings and guidance. It's a it's like a tangible connection to the divine. And she gives it to him and she's like, you got to wear this so you don't get bullied. And He's like, no, this is disgusting and embarrassing. I don't want to wear this from you, mom. And he's saying, absolutely not. The only way that she could convince him to wear it was to tell him that the amulet came from the Hindu deity of love, compassion, devotion, strength, and intelligence himself. So some people speculate this kind of goes to show maybe he had some sort of budding narcissistic personality disorder where he felt like it was now worthy to be worn every single day if it was given from someone very powerful versus his mom. But he's eight, so I don't think we can really speculate, right? Now, Amar gave his mom a sly smile and he snatches the amulet and he wears it every single day now. And I just don't even think that Amar really considered how much his parents loved him. Like his parents were under constant stress. Okay, his dad, I believe his dad was the only one that was working and he was a day laborer, meaning he would go to all these nearby farms and he would ask, do you guys need any workers today? If they said yes, he would work that day and get paid for that one day. If they said no, he would have to move on to the next farm. And if all of them said no, he would have no work that day. It's just so unstable. And even when he did work, he was making basically pennies. The average wage for a day laborer in that area was around $2.50 or $3 per day. And that's calculated with inflation. Wow. So they genuinely don't know where their next meal is coming from. But they're still trying to give their son all the toys, all the food that he wanted. I mean, they couldn't say yes to him every single time, which side note, he would throw an absolute tantrum every time that they said no. But at least they tried to give him anything that his friends would have. They were really happy with having a son. His parents were a bit traditional. This is also going to come into play in a second because it's all going to go to shit in two seconds and you're going to be like, why did this happen? So his parents were very traditional. They felt like a son was the best thing to happen to them. They felt like a son is an heir. 
There's someone that's going to live in your house traditionally and their wife is going to come live in your house with the son. They're going to have their own kids and you're going to live with all of them and they're going to take care of you as you get older. Meanwhile, having a daughter is kind of like an, a, a gift. You get to spend a good amount of time with her and then you give her away. <laughs> to the husband's family. Side note, this is super traditional. Not everyone in India is like this, but Amar's family was super traditional. They really babied him. Like, really babied him. So. My dog Mango has been with me through some really crazy times in life. I mean, she's been with us for the past 10 years. If you guys don't know, Mango is my little French bulldog with half hair, okay? She's fuzzy only half the time, and she is literally the glue of my family. I have quite literally named an entire podcast and a YouTube channel from my dog Mango. She is the reason that these channels exist. But three years ago, Mango was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and she was always at risk of excessive bleeding. Her fur was falling out in clumps. It was it was a pretty stressful time in my life. I was constantly emotional about Mango being in pain and then I would be, get so stressed out every time I started going over the vet bills. Every time we took her to the vet, it was like thousands of dollars because her condition was so difficult to treat. And I am just so thankful that we had savings to cover it. I wish I had no about spot pet a few years back it would have just eased so much of that stress our partner spot pet insurance is here to share a message today on how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected because with spot pet insurance you can get up to 90 percent cash back on eligible vet bills our dogs are always there for us during our hardest times and we need to be there for them too go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly visit spotpet.com paid ad from spot pet insurance waiting periods annual deductibles coinsurance benefit limits and and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. When I was in high school, I had this ritual every day after coming home from school. I would grab a salty snack, sit down, watch my favorite mystery drama on TV. And recently I discovered the adult version of that, which at the end of the workday, I grab salt and vinegar chips, snuggle up on the couch, and I play June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden objects mystery game that makes me feel like I'm living inside of a mystery TV show that is very immersive. You play as Detective June Parker, and you just found out that your sister and husband were murdered. This is a fictional story. So you fly from London to New York to investigate, but the clues are just not adding up. So you get to go through these series of scenes from the mansion living room to a lavish garden to a 1920s style New York cafe. In each room, you have to find hidden objects that help you solve the mystery of your sister's death. And in the meantime, a whole lot of unexpected just scandalous twists are going to happen. There's family secrets, danger, there's romance. I love traveling all over the world with June. Currently, I'm exploring Paris in the 1920s. Because the game is set in the 1920s, it just has the most aesthetic game design ever, and it's so cozy. Whenever I need a break from the suspense, I can pause the story and head over to my private island. Yeah, they give you a private island and you get to customize it however you want for you. I love cottage core mixed with that old money vibe with a huge mansion and a luxurious garden and even like this train rail. June's journey is the best way to unwind at the end of a long day or just to take a break in the middle of the day when I feel overwhelmed. I can escape all of my problems and turn into Detective June. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. Amar's aunt, Mina, comes over one day. 
She's like, I have a huge favor. I'm so sorry. This is a, a Mars mom's sister. Mm-hmm. Do you mind taking care of my oh. six-month-old son for just one month? Wow. I'm so desperate. You have no idea. So for the past six months, since the day that she had her baby boy, Mina has been dealing with physical, emotional recovery of giving birth, but also the burden of just not being able to put food on the table. They have been up to their neck every single day for the past six months. And Mina, finally, she found a job in the city where she could clean houses for a month. And it wasn't a job where she could take her son. She'd be cleaning people's homes day in, day out. She would start her mornings at 7 a.m., do chores as fast as she could onto the next house, onto the next, and then probably be back at midnight, get back up at 7 a.m., seven days a week, no off days. And at the end, they get to take home about $35 to $100 a month. Not per day, per month. Wow. Yeah. Mina needed this $100. It would be a life of a difference for their struggling family. I mean, no mom wants to part with their newborn child like that, but it's so that he could have his belly full. And it made sense to leave her baby boy with Parul, Amar's mom, because Parul was heavily pregnant with her second child. So she was going to be breastfeeding soon, and the nephew would also be breastfed, so she'd be kind of like a wet nurse, like a caretaker. Parul was like, I don't know, Mina. I mean, we're already swore, like we're already drowning in bills. We can barely put food on the table. I don't know if we can take in another mouth to feed. Obviously, I want to help, but we're about to have another one on the way. I mean, I said, I can send you some of my money. So Parul could not say no. She agreed. And the day Mina was set to leave, she brought her son over. I don't know if I could verify his name, so we're just going to call him the baby boy. And Mina just cradled him, said a prayer for him dabbed a bit of coal from her eyes to his forehead to, to protect him. And then she left. Mina was sad, but she's like, this is the right thing to do. Not only that, but this is like the second best place for my baby. If I can't take care of my baby, my sister is the second best place. Nobody's going to care for my baby like our family. So for the first week, Parul is just adjusting to have a newborn around. And she kind of thought it was good practice since she's going to be having a baby soon. It would have been seven years since Amar had been an infant. So she's getting all these refreshers. She's using Amar's old clothes, old toys, old crib for the baby, as well as some of the things that Mina had left for her. And one morning, she's like, oh my God, I got to go to the market to buy some vegetables for dinner tonight. We're out of vegetables. So she swaddles the baby boy, places him into the crib, and she tells her son, keep an eye on the baby. I'm not going to be gone long. I'm just literally going down the street to get some veggies, okay? Amar nods and watches her rush out the door. Once he heard that door click shut, and this is from his confession, he jumped to his feet and walked to the crib. He stared down at the baby, peacefully sleeping in front of him, and he starts kind of... um pinching his baby cousin's cheeks, like lightly, you know, when you, with affection, kind of pinch a baby's cheeks. Mm -hmm. And then Amar pulled his arm back, gave it a second thought, paused, and then lifted his hand all the way back and slapped the baby on the face as hard as he could. And so, of course, his baby cousin starts waking up crying, scream crying from the shock and the pain, and Amar is smiling to him, I guess there was something about the baby's cries that felt good, like, like some sort of achievement. It was his goal. And he keeps reaching up and down to slap, pinch, hit, all of these things, even scratching his cousin. 
He did this until his cousin's voice was scratchy and raw from all the crying. Eventually, the fun wears off, and Amar reaches both his hands down into the crib. He might have even needed to tiptoe a bit to get all the way down to where the baby was laying, because he's seven, okay? And he used his two small hands to wrap them around his cousin's even smaller neck, and he squeezed. He never broke eye contact. He watched as his cousin started wheezing, and then he watched as his cousin's eyes turned bright red. I mean... He didn't even stand a chance. Newborns can't fight back, but not only that, they're so utterly delicate, it can just take 15 seconds for a baby to lose consciousness from strangulation. The brain cannot go more than four minutes without oxygen. The cousin was dead before Parul could even get to the market. What? So Amar felt like he had more time. He grabbed his baby cousin and hauled him to the backyard. And at first he thought, okay, maybe I'm just going to lay him in the grass. But it just didn't feel like enough. So he grabbed a nearby brick and started slamming it onto the delicate skull. And he did this until there was allegedly brain matter splattered all over the grass around. Wait, why did he do that? This becomes a thing that he seems to do quite a bit. Um, Other sources say that he also tended to shove mud into their mouths but that one was not as verifiable so and finally when he felt satisfied enough he grabbed the little family shovel nearby and starts digging this shallow grave he places his cousin inside and he starts pushing all of this dirt that he can find on top whatever leftover of the brain matter he went and sprinkled some dirt and loose grass like loose as if he just pulled it out and sprinkled it on top just sprinkled it on top and then went inside. The whole thing took less than half an hour. When Parul came home, Amar seemed like he was deep in this like solo play session with his toy cars, just as if nothing had happened. And if you remember from the beginning of this episode, his mom is telling him like, where did you hide the baby? Come on, this is not a fun prank. He leads her to the backyard and points at the ground where he had just buried his cousin. And he just straight up tells his mom everything in almost this in korean we call it which means just so blunt to the point where it's like just not socially acceptable um he would say things like yeah i mean i I killed him i hit him in the head with the brick and she just lost it now i don't know how she got through the next few hours it's not like she could call her husband to come home because he was at work where she couldn't reach him She couldn't call her sister for help. She couldn't even call the police because her motherly instinct told her that she couldn't turn in her own child. Wow, no way. So she waited until Amar's dad got home. And what he did is also very confusing. He grabbed his belt and beat Amar within an inch of his life. Amar kneeled in front of them and he's bleeding. He's like a mess. And the parents are pacing around the house trying to figure out what to do next. And they're trying to reason with themselves. They're like... He, he's just a kid, you know? There's just no way that he knew what he was doing. He probably doesn't even know what death is, right? And it, they were probably just playing. And I mean, there's no way that he meant to do this. But what do we do? We have a body in our backyard. Do we call the police? No, that's going to ruin his life. He's just a kid. We can punish him ourselves, punish him so badly that he will never, ever think of doing something like this ever again. You know, what's done is done. Going to the police is not going to change anything. So... They wait. And a month later, when Mina walks through the door, she saw the couple sitting on the couch waiting for her. 
And they were like at the edge of their oh seats as if they had been waiting on her. And it's just unsettling. It's weird. And she's like, hey, guys, what's going on? Like, why are you guys so serious? It said that Amar's dad got up, walked up straight to Mina and dropped to his knees. What's going on? What, what are you doing? And he said, please, it was just an accident. Mina was so confused, so she's looking at her sister, who's sobbing on the couch, and her face is in her hands. I mean, her whole body is shaking. And between sobs, she says, Amar and the baby were playing, but there was an accident, and now he's dead, and we had to bury him because the neighbors were going to find out. So they begged with a hysterical Mina, please, you cannot let this get out. His life is going to be ruined, and it's not like it's going to change anything. We will, we will carry this burden for the rest of our lives. I will promise you that. It said that Mina looked for Amar, her son's killer, and he was hiding halfway behind a door, and he was peeking out with half of his body, like half of his face was visible. And it said that she didn't need to see his whole face to know that he was smiling. So for whatever reason, Mina agreed not to file charges. Maybe it was for her sister. Maybe she agreed somewhat with the logic that Amar's life would be ruined and it wouldn't bring back her son. And not only that, but I think a big aspect is it would probably ruin her family relationship, not just with her sister, but probably with everybody else too. I mean, even if they don't know what's going on, it's going to be tense. It's going to be family drama. Not that you know, this isn't, but for whatever reason, the police never found out. And within six months, it's like Amar's parents forgot the whole thing. I mean, they really dote on him. I don't know if I want to call it the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if I want to call it like the son syndrome, which I've experienced in South Korean culture, which is when parents are so obsessed with their sons, they think like their sons are jesus christ reincarnated i don't know maybe it's that but they just like put it past them they pushed the accident that's what they considered it an accident to the back of their minds and their logic was this is a one-time mistake a mistake that a child made because they didn't know better and now he knows better he knows that hitting people with bricks is not a thing that you do side note i personally feel like that's not something that needs to be taught but here we are and the parents believed wholeheartedly Amar just didn't know better at the time, which is why they felt like it was okay to bring another infant into the house. This time, it was Amar's baby sister. They're, she um, gave birth. Yeah. And his parents were so ecstatic. They had always wanted one boy, one girl in that order. And they sat Amar down, let him hold his baby sister for the first time, and they told him, this is your little sister. Your big brother now, you have to protect and look after her. This is your job. Do you understand? And he would smile and nod. And for a while, everything in the house was normal. Like Omar was back to climbing trees, scraping his knees, living his best life. Which side note, imagine being the aunt and seeing Omar live the life that your own son will never get to live. Like, I don't know how I could even face any of them after that. Omar was actually good for a minute. He was good with his sister. His parents would smile as they would walk by and Omar would be sitting by his little sister's crib, watching over her protectively. Or they would all be eating dinner together and his little baby sister would eat peas for the first time and she would flick them at people and he would just smile so lovingly. And as the baby sister got a little bit older, a few months old, she started smiling back at him. Until one afternoon, 
the whole family was having quiet time. I don't know if you guys have quiet time in your family, but it's usually after lunch. So the whole family is instructed to go back to their rooms to do something quiet. Like after lunch, you go read a book, you nap, you do puzzles, whatever it may be. You cannot be loud. You cannot turn on the TV. So Parul and her husband were taking a nap in their rooms, and I believe their door was open. The baby was in her crib taking a nap as well, and the baby wasn't inside their room, but because their door was open and their house was not big, they could hear everything. I mean, if they heard that baby cry, they could be there in like five seconds max. Amar was in his room, quietly playing with his toys. And at this point, a full eight months had passed since Amar's cousin was killed by Amar. And I'm not sure why. Perhaps out of sheer boredom, curiosity, or just some sort of sick, deranged twistedness, Amar got up, tiptoed his way over to his little sister's crib. She wasn't asleep. She was staring blankly at the ceiling. She's kind of half smiling at Amar as he's staring over her. He leans down as if he's going to pick her up. And then as fast as lightning, his hands wrap around her neck. Her airway is completely obstructed. She could not cry or scream. She could only wave her arms and kick her legs. He used all of his might to strangle her, and eventually even her legs stopped kicking. He stared at her limp body for maybe a few seconds before he slithered back into his room, just leaving her like that in the crib. He went back to playing with his toys as if nothing had happened. When his parents woke up, he heard them make their way to the baby's crib. And Parul saw that her baby girl was just sleeping. So she leaned down to kind of stroke her cheek. And as soon as she touched her chubby little cheek, she jerked her hand back. Her baby's skin was cold, like stone cold. And she turned around and she called for her husband. And in the corner of her eye, she could see Amar. And he was playing with his toys on the floor. She marched up to him. What have you done? What have you done? Did you kill your sister? Amar looked up and nodded. Some sources say that he was smiling. Amar's father took a few big steps, raised his hand above his head, and slapped the eight-year-old with the entire force of a full-grown man. I mean, that effectively knocked the smile out of Amar's face. He started sobbing on the floor. His parents are screaming, Why? Why would you do this? Why did you do this? Answer the question. Amar's mom was on the floor, like hysterical. She was losing her mind, rightfully so. It got to the point where neighbors started gathering outside their door because there was so much of a ruckus. They wanted to know if they were okay. Some of the neighbors actually rushed in through the door without knocking because they thought something horrible was happening to the family. And when they run in, they're processing the scene. The entire family is in the living room. I mean, the parents are beyond hysterical. It's not even like they got robbed. Like the feeling is something terrible, terrible happened. Amar is being punished and there's a dead baby in the crib. Oh, they saw the dead baby? Yeah, so they're putting two and two together, these neighbors. They try to calm down the father, Amar's father, and reason with him, we have to report this to the police. You have to put a stone in your heart. It's going to be rough, but you have to do it. And the dad allegedly said, no, I'm going to kill him myself. The neighbors had to physically hold him back. Now, Amar is sitting there, just tears running down his face, and he's angry now. You know when you scold a child for too long, sometimes they get angry, I guess? And he's screaming like a petulant child, so what if I killed her? And, I mean, even the neighbors no didn't know what to say. Way. They got quiet on this one. Like, so what? So what? How do you even answer that? It's almost as if he's asking, so what if I eat the cookie before dinner? 
Why should I be punished for something that's not the end of the world? And the neighbors are like, okay, we can't do anything about this. So they silently hush each other out of there. I mean, there was nothing that they could do to help now. This kid was beyond helpable in their belief. And the next two days, they just anxiously waited around to see if Amar's parents had gone to the police. Instead, they showed up at each neighbor's doorstep with a favor. If you could just please keep quiet about what you saw. It's a family matter, and we would like to handle it within our family. We're going to make sure that Amar learns his lesson, so please, we're already suffering, so don't make it worse for us. If you want to help, just please stay quiet. I think the parents' logic was they already lost one child, and putting another one in jail would be effectively losing him as well. I think that they also hoped that they could maybe beat the murderous tendencies out of their son. I guess they thought, he's just nine. Maybe we can teach him for the next decade what he did is bad and eventually he can move on, get a job, get a wife, have children of his own. Listen, I'm not sure I'm on board with this logic, but also I've never been a parent, so maybe I wouldn't know. Leave it in the comments if you're a parent. Like, does this logic make sense or is this kind of crazy? There is some cultural context as well. So in India, especially in rural areas, the family last name is... It's everything. It's kind of like that in East Asian culture as well. I think Japan, from what I hear, has a very strong belief in this. But family members want their last names to have esteem, high regard, respect, or at least in the lowest situations, be a neutral name. So doing something that disrespects the family, it doesn't just look bad on you. It looks bad on the whole family. At this point, the Sada family were known around town as hardworking, respectable, if word got out that Amar killed his own baby sister, their whole family would suffer. I mean, Amar's dad might not be able to even get a job or put food on the table for the whole family. Their family will not be able to escape this reputation for probably generations. That's how bad it is. I suppose they maybe didn't want to cause even more harm to their extended family members as well. I guess their logic was, well, it's not going to bring back the two victims. So they convinced themselves they're going to punish Amar so deeply, so badly, that he's never going to do this again. Side note, his cool-down period was eight months between his first and second murder. He only waited eight months. The first cool-off period is usually the longest, and sometimes with certain serial killers, it can last like a year or even longer. But his was only eight months, and he's eight. So I don't know what the psychology behind that is, honestly. Maybe the time would have been shorter if he had access to another infant. Or maybe, you know, you can't help but wonder, maybe if his parents hadn't chosen to forget the first incident, would there even be a second incident? One thing's for sure. The neighbors would never forget. Kashbu's mom was not a neighbor. She didn't even know Amar. But she did have an eight-month-old daughter named Kashbu, who would have been, um, very hard, very difficult to run errands with. So Mrs. C is what we're going to call her, the mom. She had a few errands to run on her list and thought, okay, there is no way that I can get all of this done before the shops close if I take Kushbu with me. So she needed somewhere to drop off her baby for the day. And she chose this local daycare. Okay, like remember how I said there's not really daycares? It's not really a daycare. A lot of sources indicate that it seems more like it was a business run out of someone's home. Yeah. And there were a lot of moms just watching a ton of kids for the neighbors. It, there wasn't like cameras. It wasn't an established business. There wasn't a certain number of like regulations they were following. It's like an at-home daycare. Now, Kushboo had already fallen asleep on the way to the daycare, so it was kind of perfect. Miss Sissy would run her errands, drop the groceries back off at her home, and be back to pick up Kushboo before she even woke up from her afternoon nap. By the time she gets back to the daycare, 
You guessed it. Kashbu, who was once sound asleep, is gone. She's gone. She's not there. Oh, physically gone. Physically gone. So, I mean, this daycare service, a lot of people. There were a lot of crazy toddlers running around. And because this was an underserved area, there were no door locks, childproofing, security cameras, or even like a receptionist watching the front desk at all times. It was, you know, it just wasn't that secure. And I'm sure if Kashbu was crying and woke up crying, one of the daycare workers would have noticed and heard and rushed over to the room and helped her. But she was just gone. You know, and the locals, they start freaking out. They start full on panicking. They had no idea where she had gotten. Could someone really have come in and taken her? That does make sense. I mean, when you think of someone that goes into a daycare and steals a child, I'm sure we all have like the same kind of image in our head. It's like this older man looks creepy, looks like a serial killer. But the daycare workers would have noticed. Are you kidding? It's not that big of a space. I mean, she's too small to run off on her own. So this doesn't make sense either. So the police get involved, the neighbors get involved, everyone is whispering about all the possibilities. Well, maybe there was a nasty man who's going around kidnapping children and maybe he's so good at being discreet. Maybe the daycare workers accidentally hurt her and now they're trying to cover for it. There were so many speculations running through people's minds, but once the news traveled, and it, it traveled fast, by the way, once it traveled to Amar's home and to all of his neighbors, they're all looking at each other like, I don't think we're looking for some 50-year-old creepy man. I think it's Amar. It actually wasn't a neighbor that reported Amar. It was one of Amar's own family members, an auntie of his, who had heard of everything that happened with both the victims. And she quietly found Kashbu's mom, pulled her to the side and said, I heard about what happened. I don't really know how else to put this, but I have this nephew and... He's got a history, if you will, of just doing some evil things to babies. I feel like he's involved. People did not take this lightly. This is coming from an extended family member. Like, you just don't say things like this. Even the idea that a small kid could do something so evil is out of this world. It just doesn't make sense that this was a baseless accusation or a lie. Amar was now suspect number one. The entire community formed an angry mob and stormed up to the Seda house. They demanded that the parents bring Amar to them initially. Initially, his parents tried to reason with the crowd. They're standing on the porch like he's just a boy. How could he be responsible for this? Think about it, everyone. He's a boy. You guys have kids. Think about it. Besides, bring us the evidence and we will bring you Amar. The neighbors would not give in. They stood outside until Amar was finally pushed out of his own home. He stepped out onto the porch in front of the crowd and allegedly they were screaming, tell us what you did. Tell us what you did to that baby girl. Some people said he smiled as he said this, but he bluntly stated, I killed her. And the mob of people dragged Amar from his porch and demanded he take them to where Kushbu was. He led them to the edge of town and there was like a little pile of rocks covered with loose dirt and grass. And he pointed right there. The mob ran to the police and they didn't care that Amar's parents didn't want to ruin his life. Now their own children, their own families were in danger. So they ran all the way to the police station, told them everything that they knew. And side note, Mrs. C would do an interview a little bit later on and she tells a completely different story of how it all went down. She stated that Amar came up to her directly and asked if he could play with the baby. And Mm -hmm. she stated she didn't think much of it because she was running errands and this is like a cute little eight-year-old boy. So she was like, okay, I guess you can play with my baby. 
she shared that version? Yes, later on. So, okay, the story contradicts Mrs. C's own police reports from the day of the incident, as well as a ton of witness testimonies. It also contradicts Amar's own confession. So most people don't believe that this new version of events is the true version. But no, why? Yeah, so there's some speculations. Nobody knows exactly why. Some people speculate it's because the daycare that she dropped Kashbu off wasn't really a daycare. Some speculate that she just kind of dropped her baby off somewhere in like the public space mm. to run errands. And then she like made up the daycare story and then was like, ooh, then they're going to want to know which daycare and all of that. Then some people stated, oh, no, she actually went to a daycare, but she probably didn't want that daycare to get the heat. So okay. then she changed her story. Either way, I don't think that her new story is the real version of events. But Amar had taken another life. If I offered you two different pairs of jeans and I told you that you can only wear one of them, you could probably decide in two seconds. But what if I offered you a thousand pairs of jeans and they're all slightly different and I said you can only wear one of these for the next 12 months straight. This will be your go-to pant of choice. What are you going to do? How do you even start to choose? That's exactly what I felt like when I was combing through thousands of listings whenever we were moving to a new apartment. I would spend hours a day stressing about, is this apartment in a good neighborhood? Is it going to accommodate my dogs? Does it fit my budget? I didn't know any of these. And the worst part is most of the listings didn't even tick all of my boxes. That is why Apartments.com is your best place to look for your new home. Apartments.com lets you filter your search based on whether you have pets, if you want a balcony, built-in AC, whatever it is that you're looking for. The website remembers your search so that you don't have to keep filtering every time you come back. And Apartments.com has more rental listings than anywhere else, meaning no matter how specific your needs are, they got you. And your instant alerts mean that you can spend less time online looking for the perfect place and more time doing you. So if you're looking for a new place to call home, head over to apartments.com apartments.com the place to find a place i love meal deliveries in fact i love everything about having my meals delivered straight to my doorstep except the delivery fees that's why i signed up for the dash pass an exclusive membership from doordash that lets you make an unlimited amount of fee-free orders for eligible orders whether it's food from your favorite restaurants groceries from across town or anything in between the dash pass can get you zero dollar deliveries and lower service fees on eligible orders that means you can easily save money at your favorite restaurants and grocery stores the dash pass practically pays for itself in two orders on average the math is mathing plus dash pass gives you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items and all of this for only 9.99 a month open the door to zero dollar delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else sign up for dash pass today only on doordash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member subject to change terms apply he was finally arrested May 30th of 2007, and he quickly confessed everything to the police. And this is where the case is so confusing. Amar said he wanted to confess because his parents taught him that lying is bad. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, yeah, every time someone asked him, he just said it. Yeah. But this is so weird. So lying is like a cardinal sin for him. Clearly, he didn't think murdering three people was that bad. When asked about why he killed them, he said, because I wanted to, I didn't see why I shouldn't. A lot of people, including myself, are so confused about this case because ultimately Amar had two parents that loved him, maybe a bit too much, but they loved him. He had a roof over his head. He had food on the table. He had tons of neighborhood friends before he pushed them all away. 
And the question around this case is, is a killer born or is a killer created? Or is it a bit of both? I feel like a long time ago, we actually did an episode where we theorized a bit. And uh, quick disclaimer, I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychologist. But we were talking about how it seems like some people start out fine and then suddenly their lives just start spiraling into this black hole of crime, like a just rabbit hole of death. And you can see cases where the killer is just like all the other kids growing up. And the only difference is maybe they have like a slightly abusive parent or a slightly absent parent, or maybe they have a bully at school. Or the most random one that I've seen in so many cases is they fall off a swing and hit their heads. Yes. And it's like, it's happened so many times Mm -hmm. and it's just the weirdest, it's weird. It seems like that's a key moment that has them going 50 miles an hour towards the dark side, falling off a swing. Yeah, so there's definitely brain injury. Yeah, to the frontal lobe is what people suspect. But it makes you wonder, okay, if that hadn't happened, would they have lived a different life? But then again, there's a ton of people who are dealt much worse cards and they never kill anyone. So Mm -hmm. it can't just be the environment. So maybe the conclusion is a little bit of both. So let's say each time a person is born, they're either born a teddy bear or as a gun. And as they live life, all the little bits of trauma or sometimes even perceived trauma become bullets. And you can put a bullet in a teddy bear, but it's not going to do anything but hurt the teddy bear. But if you put bullets continuously into a gun, all it takes is a little bit of pressure and boom. And again, this is no way of excusing it. Like being born a certain way is no excuse to take a life or hurt another person. But that's kind of how I explain it in my head to make it make sense. It's obviously oversimplified, but it's just, it's weird that so many people can live such similar lives, such traumatic lives. And one is a killer and one is a guidance counselor slash activist that helps others. So the only way that I can try and understand today's case is You know, I was thinking, okay, if Amar had committed these crimes when he was older, like when he was in his 20s, I would probably assume that he was born a gun and through life trauma, he became a serial killer. But he's eight. He's eight. Yeah, that's... So do we just conclude that he was born a fully loaded gun? Were there any additional things that have pushed him over the edge at such a young age? Honestly, I don't know. I tried to comb through all of the research and obviously with the help of our wonderful researchers, there's just a few things that we could find and I'm not even sure how much these contribute. Amar's family was part of the scheduled cast, aka the untouchables in India. Um, We did a case that covered the caste system. Side note, the caste system has since been abolished in India, but from what my researchers have told me, in a lot of parts of India, the system is very much upheld socially. Mm. Can you explain that again? Yes. Okay. So the caste system in India is a social power pyramid, to put it simply. And we have the same thing in the US. It's just not as rigid. We've got the upper class, then we've got the middle upper class, then the middle class, then the middle lower class, then the lower class. You get it. That's basically it. But with the caste system, it's based on who you're born into which I guess is the same in America, right? So the people at the top of the pyramid, they're the priests, they're the scholars, they are considered like the custodians of knowledge. And then under them, you have warriors and rulers. They're the ones that protect the land and the people. And then below that, you have merchants and farmers. 
Okay, the way I see it is like you've got academic elitist, then you've got maybe business owners, landowners, and then you've got white collar workers, blue collar workers. It's kind of that pyramid. At the bottom, you have laborers and servants. And these castes, they make up a pyramid. But then there's this other rectangle that's not part of the pyramid. It's underneath the pyramid and it's not touching the pyramid. It's completely separate. This is the untouchable cast oh yes yes it's really sad they're born into a life of discrimination and they're considered unpure and untouchable by other higher castes usually the only jobs that this caste can have access to is sewage cleaning handling animal carcasses and scavenging it's said that if they're even able to get a job in an area where other higher castes live they have to work at night so the higher castes won't even see them or accidentally oh my god touch them Hence the name untouchables or even the scheduled cast. They aren't allowed to touch other cast members or their belongings. And if you're like, okay, well, this sounds like a long time ago. I will say a lot of things are changing in India. But in 2020, a man of the scheduled cast was allegedly stripped naked in public and beaten because he touched an upper cast man's motorcycle. Which is crazy because, again, the caste system has been outlawed in 1950. But because this system has been around for 2,000 years, I mean, socially, it's going to be very hard to get rid of. Not too long ago, two boys were allegedly stripped and beaten for swimming in a well that belonged to an upper caste family. Women in the scheduled caste are a lot more vulnerable to physical and sexual violence because they're literally seen as less than human. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of people try to uphold this system because, well, for one, I'm sure as long as you're not in the bottom, you benefit. So you want to uphold the system that rewards you. But in addition to that, my researchers told me that the Hindu reincarnation belief suggests that your mm. actions in this life influence how you will be reincarnated in your future life. So I know when you like I know as a Westerner or someone that's not familiar with this, it almost feels like, oh, wait, that's literally just discrimination. OK, how are they OK with that? But if you believe in reincarnation, and if you believe that if you live a really good life and you're very faithful, you will have a chance of being reincarnated into a more privileged setting. If you commit a crime or if you don't lead a good life, you're going to be reincarnated into a lower caste. So a lot of people who follow this theology believe that their caste position is a result of their own deeds in their past lives and not luck and not being born into it and not being like a sperm fight. So they feel like they deserve whatever caste they're in. It's to the point that a lot of people in the scheduled caste actually believe that they must have lived terrible lives before this. Again, this is from my personal research online and assistance from our Indian researchers. I'm no expert in Hindu theology, so please let me know if there's other components to this in the comments. And I do want to reiterate, I would say that modern India, like most people in India are like, this casteism sucks. Like, why are people still socially upholding it? I think they're trying to, the government is trying to do like um, some sort of, would you call it restitutions? They're trying to give more opportunities to the scheduled cast to mm. uplift them now. But um, it, it was rough. So Mar was part of this social cast, and I'm sure that his life was impacted deeply by this. But I just, I don't think that's an excuse because, I mean... Yeah, it's just this this is just unheard of whatever he did. Yeah. yeah. And some people speculate that he was always jealous of other kids, but I don't know and like maybe that jealousy led to this anger and hatred for children. 
I don't really think so. It's just crazy because, you know, as an adult, you can kind of like analyze their behavior. Yeah. But when someone's at eight, their brain's not even developed yet. So how, yeah. I don't even know, like, how can I, you have to have, have like a child specialist to analyze that. Yeah. We don't know what's going on. Like, I don't even know at what stage of learning is he at. Like, what is he learning right now? Yeah. I would say even in a lot of serial killer cases that we've covered, they usually start hurting animals maybe around this age, but even mm. then, probably a little bit later. I feel like eight is usually the age where they're still being victimized by someone or something in their lives. And then once they get a little bit bigger, maybe like early teens, that's when they start being a menace. And they're like, let me take it out. Let me be the perpetrator. And they start mm. doing things to animals typically is like from at least what I've seen the pattern of. But this is crazy. I mean, at eight to not even... I don't want to say start with animals to not even have this escalation that most serial killers have, but just to go straight into killing yeah. is, I don't know. I mean, to put it simply, a lot of people think that he just experienced euphoria and satisfaction by inflicting pain. He mm -hmm. chose um, infants because they could fight back for him to get that satisfaction, but not enough that he would lose the power position. Mm-hmm. Some people state that he also just doesn't have an innate moral compass like most humans do. Actually, a lot of psychologists who work with him stated this. So you know how even as kids, you know when something doesn't feel right? You're mm -hmm. like, okay, most people aren't taught not to steal, but you know. Like, it's just like human nature to know that this is not right. Like, you're like, this is wrong. He doesn't seem to have that. They also speculate that he must have a chemical imbalance in his brain that made him dangerous. A psychotherapist who works at one of India's top institutes for medical science said, such aggression, it may be hereditary and may be caused by great levels of chemical upheaval in the brain. There's got to be something in the brain. Yeah. Side note, there is no evidence that anyone in this family was violent. His dad used physical punishment with Amar, but... So did a lot of parents in India and around the world. And again, I'm not saying like physical punishment is right, but it just doesn't seem to be a direct or only cause of why he did what he did. It just doesn't seem like he had exceptionally violent or harsh conditions from his parents or even his environment. So in the end, Amar was charged with the murder of Kashbu. He wasn't charged with the murders of his sister or his cousin because his family did not want to press charges against him. Wow. Wow, but he still killed them. There needs to be a charge for that to happen? Yeah, and uh, from what I am able to decipher right now, his mom seems to, is like denying it now. She's like, actually, he never killed anybody else. So, it's kind of a mess, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, also, under Indian law, a minor cannot be sentenced to death or sent to prison for longer than three years. He can spend his time until he's an adult locked away, but it's probably going to be in like a juvenile detention facility. Yeah. So the exact records of his sentence is unknown, but it's assumed that he spent at least three years in prison or like max three years in prison. And then he went to a juvenile detention center until he was 18. So wait, when was this? You said 2000? Oh, he's out. He's oh, free. Oh, he's out right now. Yeah, he's free. He should be 23 now. Yeah. Wait, no is my way. math correct? Yeah. And do people know where he is? No. Okay. So rumor has it that he changed his name to Simarjit and he has um, since gotten married. 
rumor has it, and lives near his mother, rumor has it. But other than that, he has stayed completely under the radar. We really don't know anything more about him other than his age, a rumored new name, and the fact that he's free. That's it. A lot of netizens believe that Amar has a high chance of committing crimes again. And it's not because people like him cannot be rehabilitated. I don't want to be the one to say that because that just sounds so depressing. But it's less about the fact that, um, you know, facilities like prisons and juvenile detention centers anywhere in the world, they're not brimming with money. It's not like they have the resources in the world to actually get people help. So they think that it's only a matter of time until he does something else after being released. Others have stated, if we haven't heard anything, he must have changed. But I don't know. There are a lot of discussions on whether or not he should be given the chance to grow. Because he was eight. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, It's confusing. This is... um Yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think eight-year-olds should be able to change even if they were serial killers? Or what if they committed essay, like something deplorable? Or do you feel like, well, commit adult crimes, do adult time? What are your thoughts? Leave it in the comments. Please stay safe. Sorry about my voice. I was coming down with a cold, so I sound so nasally and stuffy. But please stay safe. And I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.